0: And now to introduce today's speaker, I am delighted to welcome uh, a dear friend and colleague, well known to many of us, Dr. Shelley Sanders. Dr. Sanders is a practicing internist and is on faculty here with the internal medicine residency program at Providence St. Vincent. She earned her medical degree from the University of Rochester in New York, did her internal medicine residency here at St. Vincent, where she also went on to serve as chief resident. And Dr. Sanders completed the Clinical Innovation Advisor Program Fellowship with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and is well known for her passion and her expertise in QI and systems of care. Among her many leadership roles and teaching activities, Dr. Sanders is currently the Curriculum Director for the Quality Improvement um, Program here with our residency. She is also co-medical director of the Providence St. Vincent Accountable Care Unit, is the sepsis clinical lead for Oregon region, and is the chair of the system sepsis focus group for our entire Providence St. Joseph system. So Dr. Sanders, thank you for your time and your energy, and we welcome you to Grand Rounds.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Laura, and thanks to those of you that made it here in real life, and uh, hello to the virtual audience as well. Uh, I titled this talk Ordinary Doctors Caring Extraordinarily for Every Patient, Every Time. My husband works for Dexcom, but I won't be discussing their products today. Um, I will, however, disclose to you some of you may know uh, I actually have a master's degree in theology. And I'm sharing that because what I have to say today, sort of in contrast to when I speak more from an evidence-based lens is a little bit philosophical. Um, And I'd like you to use your own lens uh, to decide if what I have to say bears fruit and is true. Um, Certainly I'll try to inform and support my opinion uh, with science. Um, But I hope that all of you will think to yourselves if you agree or disagree, and maybe we can have some discussion. Following the era of evidence-based medicine, which was all the rage when I graduated medical school in the early 2000s, arose what Atul Gawandi has called the third bucket of modern medicine, quality improvement. The first bucket was really the land of Hippocrates, where we're tasting the urine and trying to understand the pathophysiology of disease. The second bucket of evidence-based medicine, where we randomize patients, figure out what evidence shows how we can improve their outcomes. If we drive down blood sugar control, can we prevent retinopathy? But really, this third bucket, how do we, once we know what we should be doing, deliver that care reliably every time for every patient? At first, um, a mixture of forces were at play and many clinicians were energized as the pendulum swung toward quality improvement by the idea that we could improve care for a large portion of patients. We were initially enthused and yet efforts to shift reimbursement models in the United States so that high quality practices were associated with remuneration while low quality practices may have uh, financial penalties really have fallen flat for the most part. In fact, Last week, someone I greatly admire, Dr. Lisa Rosenbaum, painfully articulated the opportunity cost and the lost sense of mission and patient-doctor relationship that can arise when doctors are punished by rewards. Today, I'm gonna describe what I think has led to this unfortunate state of affairs and propose one potential pathway forward with some concrete examples along the way because I am fundamentally a pragmatist, a doer, any philosophy had better bear fruit, or it's clearly not true. So let me tell you some stories today of ordinary doctors doing extraordinary work. Today, I'm gonna propose an anthropology, my own view of the human creature. I'm gonna submit that non-judgmental awareness of how we behave can help us keep an even keel as emotions run high on what's become a charged topic of quality improvement. Finally, I'm gonna propose and show that providers as agents can do authentic work improving healthcare for our patients when they are given direct access to data, the holy grail. So we're gonna, along the way, define some of these key terms, process, and outcome. We're gonna touch on the value of measurement as well as the harms of metric fixation. We'll talk about healthcare disparities as they relate to quality improvement and I hope inspire you what you might be able to do by Tuesday, but all throughout, we're gonna talk about docs as agents, connecting to the data. So first, a little story to illustrate the concept of process and outcome from our very own Accountable Care Unit here, Medical A, um, upstairs. Dr. Leicher and I meet every week with Tanisha, who is our nurse unit manager, and together the three of us are the leaders of that unit. We found in our datax reports, lots of complaints of hypoglycemia. And this touched a nerve with me because I remember as a resident having to fill out my first death certificate. I still know the patient's name. And as I dug in the chart and tried to figure out why she died, all I could come up with was that she became hypoglycemic. And the charting was like, this patient's blood sugar's 50. They gave her a cinnamon roll. Now the sugar's 38. Next thing you know, she's an AFib with RVR. She's a do not resuscitate. And by the time they got there to try to shock her, she had stopped breathing and she became, that was, the, that was her death in this hospital. So it's a topic that touched my heart. And as we reviewed our cases and talked with our pharmacy lead, Pamela Levine, whose team is shown here in the photo, we identified there was lack of consensus about our target glucose on the unit, different attendings, each one had their own flavor and there was overly aggressive continuation of outpatient medications. We did a lot of hard work talking with many of you about what should be our goal, and we agreed on some numbers. The goal is 80 to 250 on our unit Medical A. We educated everyone to this not idea of high and alive, and then we added this process. And what you see here is a calendar that hangs up at tabletop rounds, and all the residents are very familiar with this. It describes our goal, and every day, the docs and the pharmacist together collect our own data. This is the shortest possible feedback loop where the doctor and the pharmacist who are should be receiving the data actually collect the data in a visual way. We give ourselves a star if we're at goal, a check mark if we're at least high and alive, and then there's some frowny faces and X's if we fall below our target. We also asked our nurses to report at our daily bedside rounds whether the patient is within or outside our hospital goal so that the patient can hear our efforts. Here's our outcome, much safer care. Over the last three years, 2,000 patients have been treated with anti-diabetic agents and only 3.73% have had this low blood glucose event well within the system target. So when you see a beautiful project like this, I hope you're standing up and cheering and saying, what a great idea, we should all be doing quality improvement. And yet all of you know that there are certain downsides to these projects, many of which kind of go underneath the radar. And it's these harms that sometimes are obvious and sometimes not that really have created a backlash against the quality improvement movement. So the project I shared is kind of an easy win because the harm of even one low blood sugar could be death, whereas the harm of a high blood sugar is often absent or minimal. So this box, this project really checks that box but there are many other QI projects that have unmeasured harms. And one simple example was a project in clinic where we tried to reduce unnecessary proton pump inhibitors, reducing cost and polypharmacy, only to find that one patient went to the ED with chest pain and that one visit to the tune of $2,500 probably undoes all the benefit, in terms of fiscally anyway, of that project. And doctors really recognize that quality improvement can cause harm, And often there are um, emotional reactions when we see that. So one simple harm is opportunity cost. So if I get everyone paying attention to blood sugars, maybe they stop paying attention to some other things they ought to be paying attention to. If all our energy is here, it cannot also be there. And especially during COVID change fatigue, I think we've all experienced if there's too many projects going. I think the worst harm is moral distress so in this book by Jerry Mueller, the harms of metric fixation are really clearly outlined. For example, I think well-intentioned people early in our journey with quality improvement really um, bought into some of the principles that came out of business. But when they're applied to the helping professions like education and medicine, some of these so-called truisms are actually myths. For example, you have to measure something to improve it what you measure can be improved. People respond to incentives, so metrics should be attached to monetary or other incentives. Transparency is always a good thing. Subjectivity is out, we need objective measures. I think all of you in this room and on the virtual audience can see some of the harms with some of these uh, stances. And unfortunately, they can lead to things like gamifying our sacred relationship with our patient, They lead to creaming, where people are incentivized to pull in the most healthy patients so that they can hit their targets, leaving our underserved patients um, behind. And that's been seen in cardiovascular surgeries, it's been seen in other um, incentivized um, places. All of this leads to moral distress and even, I will say, fury on the part of clinicians. So I think all of us can see that medicine is not strictly a business. We know that what gets measured gets done, and yet we're also aware that things that are easy to measure may not be the most important things. Sometimes what goes undone was the most important thing, and because we're not trying to measure that thing, it it falls by the wayside. So I promised to say something about anthropology. Let me see if I can build you an analogy. I would submit to you that there's actually nothing wrong here, that we are evolving like each of us is is kind of evolutionarily, if you will, fit for the certain role that we have to play, just like every member of an orchestra. So if you think about the colleagues that went to medical school with you in your class, um, the traits that draw a person to medical school may be different than the traits that fit someone best for business school. But among the people who are in your medical school class, there's some subset of them that really like metrics. They like money. And those two traits may tend to go together. And you could think about those people as members of the profession who are particularly fitted for roles that might be in administration. This is your clinic medical director, your hospital medical director, the person that runs the insurance company. These are people who really care about doing what's right, but who are also interested in metrics and incentives, and we can actually be grateful they exist in the world. Um, The thing is that these people who are, as quality improvement science began to surface, they were the people that actually had both responsibility for the population outcomes and a bead on the money. So there became this top-down approach where the data analysts answer to the people who are at the top of the pyramid, the executives. This, for example, is Molly Modi's Outlook uh, reporting chain. She's our analyst for the unit collaborative that I'll talk about in a second. She reports to Jacob, who reports to Firozi, who reports to Ari, who reports to Amy, who reports to Rod. Now, every one of these executives is responsible for setting organizational directives, and because Molly reports to them, they control what's getting measured and what we do with that measurement. Now, again, with the idea that there's nothing wrong here, let me give you another analogy. I think we are very young in our stage of development with science of quality improvement. And if any of you have a toddler and you try to place some blocks in front of them, they cannot build, but they can knock down. They love to knock down. And no one would ever say to your toddler, it's bad that you're knocking down that tower of blocks. We all understand that that's just a normal stage of human development and you have to start somewhere. You have to play around and you have to learn and grow. So I'm borrowing this analogy from Paul Crefell, but what he says is that it is normal for us to try something and to have some false starts. And I would submit to you that at least we tried something. We tried incentivizing doctors with money to do the right thing and it was a good try, but I am proposing that maybe the next step in our journey is to begin with a bottom-up approach. And Dr. Freer, this is something that you bought into many years ago when you hired Alyssa for our residency program, (laughs) right? So the analogy here, the difference here is instead of having doctors have data done to them, meaning from on high, here's what you will do, doctor, we are instead gonna have doctors who are controlling the data, who are, are leading the work, done by so one more analogy if you'll forgive me this is my son wren long ago learning to ski pre-covid and what you'll see about wren is that he's learning to ski by sitting in the lodge eating chocolate covered pretzels and if you're wondering to yourself why is Ren in the lodge and not out on the slopes the answer is right here with this little red straps has anybody seen one of these Somebody gave us this. This is some kind of like safety device so you can teach your kid to ski by pulling them backwards every time they start getting any speed up. And this results in my child sitting in the lodge. And I could not understand why. I thought this was such a great idea. We should do this. No, I talked to Nelson who taught us to windsurf and also like runs this ski shop at Steamboat. And I said, what are we doing wrong with Ren? And Nelson said, Shelly, When you pull your kid backwards, all their weights on the back of their skis and they cannot control themselves, they have to lean down the mountain to be able to make a wedge. They have to lean down the mountain to be able to control their skis. And what you wanna do when you teach a kid to ski is put them on the flattest possible slope so that they are yearning for speed, so they're leaning into it, so they're wanting it. And this is my analogy for us. We want doctors who are yearning for data, who are hungry for it, who are leaning down the mountain and trying to um, grab the data for themselves. So how can we do this? I'm gonna tell a story about sepsis and I, I hope you'll stay with me. The hidden, you know, in those um, uh, learning objectives, I talked about process and outcome, and that's what everyone talks about when they do quality improvement talks. But the real holy grail is actually the population. If you sit down with your analyst and you try to talk to them about your query, your process, and your outcome that you want to measure, they will not even listen to you because what they want to know is who's in the pot. Well, From an administrative lens, remember administrators and executives controlling the data, they are very good at keeping track of money. And how they keep track of money is what bill is dropped. So who's in the pot from an administrative lens is defined by the DRG. For sepsis, it's very simple, 870, 871, and 872. And when Dr. Fru asked me to try to work on sepsis outcomes, mortality, by using the process, the three-hour bundle, I went in, and dug into the charts. I said, we can do this. I'm gonna read the charts and understand what's happening. And immediately what I realized is that these patients may have died with sepsis, right? But pneumonia is the old person's best friend. So these are end stage liver disease patients with decompensated cirrhosis who then get SBP and die. These are your kidney patients who die of line sepsis. These are your cancer patients who die of their pneumonia. So in my PAT, there are Pasta, kidney beans, carrots, zucchini. And the truth is only the beans can I actually fix their problem, right? Because the cancer patient was gonna die. The end stage liver patient was gonna die. And if I'm gonna try to make a difference, I can only make a difference for a very few number of those patients. And yet they're hidden in the giant pot of soup, right? So the solution to this is actually to narrow the pot down to people we can actually get at. But sepsis is really hard. It's a clinical diagnosis and it occurs prospectively. All patient care is prospective, whereas billing codes are retrospective. And so this actually is the problem with trying to do top-down version of data. So what the administrators and the statisticians have done through the years is very clever. They have clever math and what they do is when doctors say, why is the mortality at St. Vincent for sepsis higher than the mortality at Newburgh? And doctors say, because I at St. Vincent take all your sick patients from Newburgh. My patients are sicker than your patients. What What the statisticians say is, no problem, Dr. Sanders, I will adjust your data. I will do fancy math to account for how sick your patients are. And this generates something we call the O to E. Has anyone heard of this? A few of you. Not everyone. So O stands for observed. That's your observed mortality. And then expected sounds for, we have a giant database of all the hospitals in the West Coast called Intellimed. And we take patients like yours and we figure out what their expected mortality would be. And this actually works really, really well as long as you're willing to take a huge pot of patients, like thousands of patients. But when you drill down to individual patients and you look at how that number gets assigned, you will always take exception as a clinician. You'll say this person's expected mortality was 12% and yet they have metastatic stage four ovarian cancer. I can tell you that number was wrong for that patient. So this little O to E trick really gets in the way of getting providers to buy in to doing quality improvement because they always take issue with the data. And the O to E also generates some bad behaviors. So whenever you have a ratio, there are two ways to make the number better. You could actually improve the numerator. You could have fewer people die or a shorter length of stay or fewer readmissions, but that is very hard to do. That would be real work. Or you can make the number look better and you suddenly have two denominators to play with. One way you could make it look better is you could say, Yes, we still have 12 kidney beans, 12 patients that are dying of sepsis, but now let me identify more patients with sepsis. I'm going to hire a nurse and go into the hospital and every patient that might have sepsis, I'll make sure we code them as sepsis. Well, suddenly the pot is full of more carrots, onions, and zucchini, right? And the percent looks better. The other way that you can play with this is you can make the patients look sicker. And this is where all those HCC codes in clinic come from. For the docs, the residents are protected from this, but in the inpatient wards, your hospitalists get these sticky notes. And it says, Dr. Sanders, doesn't this patient have acute metabolic encephalopathy? Wouldn't you like to code for their malnutrition? And these are all well-intentioned efforts to truly capture how sick our patient population is. But it's the rare case where actually documenting that actually saves a life or shortens the length of stay. And so this practice really generates upset because doctors are interested in the numerator and yet many of the so-called QI initiatives are aimed at the denominator. Is ODE a necessary evil? I am here to say I don't think it is. I think solution number one to this problem is to select the correct population. Rather than a DRG-based case definition, we actually need to get to the bedside and do a clinical definition so let me tell you what we did for sepsis when i first started here steve asked me to work on sepsis i could not get my foot in the door with the ed department meeting i'd get put on the agenda and the day before the meeting i'd get an email from the secretary i'm sorry you've been removed from the agenda we had left such a bad taste in their mouth with our current incentive project which was to get them to do the three-hour bundle but we were defining the patient population in a way that made no sense to them So first of all, it was a DRG-based process, which was well-intentioned, but delays the timing of the chart reviews by three months because of the coding process. We had a nurse reviewing the charts, which is a huge um, sort of resource-intensive process where you're asking a nurse to dig into the chart, but we were requiring that the doctor put in their H&P or in their ED note that they suspected sepsis which had this problem, because sometimes they didn't suspect sepsis, but that was what was wrong with the patient. And anytime they didn't write it in their HMP, they were never held accountable for that care. So we had problems going and coming with this population. Also, CMS defines sepsis as present on admission if it manifests within 24 hours. And some of those cases got hypotensive on the floor at hour number 22, and now the ED doctor's in trouble because they didn't give 30 mils per kilo. You can see why they're angry right? So what we did was define the population much more clinically. We built a query for two or more SIRS with hypotension or a lactate less than four while they're in the ED. So suddenly the care is now prospective. We're not looking with DRGs. We're looking at a clinical syndrome in real time. And we got agreement from the docs, again, just like the blood sugar project, that for at least this subset of sepsis patients, the ones with hypotension, we're actually gonna get reliable with the three hour bundle. And we decided instead of starting the clock at triage, which is what CMS does, to define something we call the organ clinical time zero. You don't have three hours from triage to make this decision. You have three hours from when the patient's first manifesting their syndrome of sepsis, their hypotension. This worked a lot better. So letting doctors decide what we measure and then also what we do with what we measure. So we got a grant, and (laughs) I will say this project had a very slow start. We got a grant and we hired another nurse to do these case reviews of that project in real time. And we had a doctor who was supposed to get the feedback to their colleague, but the entire year shown in blue that we had this grant, we only get sent that email one time. But the next month we had a 90% bundle adherence up from our previous performance in the 60s. And to me, this was proof of concept. I was like, I think emails might work. Doctors want to do the right thing. And if we can remind them about the case before they forget about it, it might work. So slowly over time, we got to Q2 week emails and then to weekly emails. And you can just see that the bundle adherence improved to 80%, much, much better, more reliable performance. Here's our 2021 data, lots of green. Our target is now 85% for bundle adherence for this specific population. And we spread this across all eight of the hospitals. Now, these emails were kind of an interesting intervention because we decided we would actually include the doc's name and the MEDREC number. And in red are these four bundle elements. And we allow the physician to talk back to us. So we want clean data, and we want people engaged with the data. So we built a relationship where every hospital has its own ED champion. They get this email. They decide if they wanna see the person in the hallway and mention it, or if they wanna send it to them. And if the doc says, you know, that wasn't a sepsis case, that person overdosed on their narcotic, they had aspiration pneumonitis, it might've looked like sepsis, but it wasn't, we pull that patient back out of the data. So we really try to create this um, trusting uh, feedback loop and you can just see that over time our mortality really has improved we used to have these huge peaks and valleys peaks during the summer up to 20% mortality but once we started those feedback emails we smoothed this out and we were delivering much more reliable care and organs o to e improved from 1.2 down to 0.89 or better So I'm really pleased with this work that we've done in Oregon. And I feel like the root of it is really giving early care that um, makes sense for the patient and focusing on the sickest of the sick. Here's the money that we spend in Oregon. This axes on this graph are inverted so that the good quadrant is the top right quadrant. In Oregon, we spend 77 cents to the system's dollar on sepsis care. Early care saves ICU length of stay and reduces overall mortality. So here's our o to e for mortality. I will say Texas, New Mexico has a slightly lower o to e mortality and they spend $14,000 per case to achieve that to our 8900. So now we have this network of docs that are engaged and interested and when new things come out like the surviving sepsis campaign, which now is saying antibiotics within one hour of shock and Ray Moreno comes up with a pithy statement of ID to IV We now have buy-in, so we just are rolling out a new visual where we're trying to say from time zero to 60 minutes, can we get antibiotics into people's veins? We've been doing this for a number of years and pre-COVID we were within 60 minutes, but now we're not. And what we need to do is divide this workflow into hypotension to the order for antibiotics, which is shown in orange here for each of our hospitals, and then the nursing work from order to hung. And we can't expect our nurses to scramble and make up for the lost time if it takes the doc over 60 minutes to even place the order. So this new visual will be in place in our EDs, um, and I'm really excited to see the team move forward. But it's only when they trust the data, these are clean cases that Susie has reviewed, that we can even have a hope of, of making these process improvements. So that's just one example of trying to focus on process measurement for the sickest of the sick. I think the idea that doctors are professionals, they're internally motivated to do what's right, and the notion of getting data back in the hands of these people really is a solution for us. I'm gonna share a couple more examples, but I just wanted to tell you um, that I'm not the only one that thinks this way. So here is Don Berwick's article with two colleagues from December of 2021 in JAMA, talking not about sepsis, but about patient-reported outcomes, which are all the rage, as you know. Right now, patient experience is an important thing to measure. And what they say is there are two truths regarding using measurement to improve patient experience. It's essential and done poorly. It does far more harm than good. And I think this is very similar to our sepsis situation. What Berwick and colleagues have said is that when we have these norm-based hospital star ratings where we're ranking hospitals on their performance, we end up having extrinsic motivation to try to get one notch higher on the curve. And it doesn't matter if you're already giving excellent patient experience, you don't get credit unless you're higher than your neighbor in these ranking systems. And you can think about this, how you felt in medical school, if your class was ranked versus if you were in a P equals MD or pass equals medical doctor um, program. Um, What Berwick and colleagues are saying is that we should consider getting rid of hospital star ratings, which generate these these, uh, increasing cost behaviors like hiring a consultant to win at this game and instead move more like something like the national board exam, where there's a certain minimum criteria that you need to meet that's good enough, and you achieve your star rating based on meeting these pre-specified criteria. And this would motivate behavior that just measures what matters to try to improve. I must say, I like their approach and I think this is the direction we can go as we move from toddlerhood into the next stage of development in our QI journey. So um, it's not just what you measure, but what you do with what you measure. It may be that asking patients about their experience is the right question, but then trying to figure out what we do with that information and how we make it available to the stakeholders um, is really the next step. So I wanted to touch on QI as it may relate to healthcare disparities. In its best um, case, QI could actually improve um, healthcare disparities, but in this article, which was really good from a pediatrics journal, they do highlight that QI has the potential to actually widen healthcare disparities. And so this little uh, diagram is intended to show that QI could make things better, make things worse, or just maintain a disparities. So let's give a couple examples of how this might play out to hold ourselves accountable to this important area. So an example they gave in the article, if we're trying to increase corticosteroid inhaler use among patients with asthma and we target the provider with some kind of like pop up or a reminder about how important this is, that may improve care, but it will only work if the patient really trusts the doctor and if the lesion is that the the patient doctor trust is not there then you can tell the doctor to order things till you're blue in the face but the patient doesn't actually get the care so identifying what's driving the problem is really critical and there's some trouble when we try to put money behind these incentives which I don't need to spell out for you but similar to the world of education if we require docs to earn back some portion of their salary by meeting certain targets, they are motivated to cream, meaning they're motivated to only to pull into their practice those patients most likely to be adherent to therapy. And then this leaves our underserved population without primary care. Similarly, practices that are really set up in underserved communities may not have the capacity or the um, economic or other um, pieces of the puzzle to actually be able to do quality improvement and so ironically sometimes we take from the poorest and pass it back to the richest with these incentive programs this is something we have to fix so the recommendations from this article i think are worthwhile they're saying we need to customize and culturally tailor anything we do with regard to qi and this really involves listening to our stakeholders We also need robust QI study designs so that things like the interrupted time series, a process control, or a stepped wedge where you roll the the, um, project out in different communities can help us identify communities where the project's working versus places where it doesn't work so well. And the residents in their QI curriculum are asked to think about this very carefully as they roll things out so they don't blind themselves to healthcare disparities. we also need to think about social determinants of health and a nice example would be thinking about the environment is there mold in your environment that's triggering your asthma and then finally just like at our Borland free clinic where the residents take care of their patients integrating um, preventive care alongside acute care visits so that we're not missing opportunities to get a screening test done just because the patient's here for an acute injury or something so When we do QI, we start where we have the biggest wins. And I would say in Oregon, the biggest win was in the ED for sepsis, and that was good, we did good, and we found a workflow that works for about 80% of our patients. But Now the next step is to really challenge ourselves to revisit that 20% and figure out what's going on. So our growth edge for this year is this effort to look through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion at our own data. So shown here in the middle column, mortality O to E lower is better, I've drawn a box around our Asian and black patients. And when you compare them to the white patients, you can see a healthcare disparity. We have higher mortality among Asian and black patients. Now, interestingly, the percent of sepsis patients with hypotension is actually lower among our black patients. Well, that's interesting here's my thought. Just like the EGFR equation that may under or overestimate um, glomerular filtration rate, I think we built a metric that may systematically underestimate the prevalence of hypotension, relative hypotension, in our black patients. So if you think about the surviving sepsis campaign definition, they they don't just say systolic less than 90 or MAP less than 65. They say a drop of 40 points from baseline. And my query cannot get at that. I don't have the outpatient good blood pressure measurement to compare to. And so all I did was build this query as a systolic um, less than 90. And I think if our black patients walk around with a blood pressure of 150 or 160 in the outpatient world, they might be hypotensive at 110 or 100. And I might be missing them in my alerts and other workflows. So this is really painful to me because this is system level data that I helped build. But we are gonna try. So again, in blue and orange at the top, we're seeing the percent of our patients who are Asian and black who receive antibiotics within three hours of hypotension. And I would say those bars are shorter than the white bar, 58% versus 63%. We also have prolonged length of stay. So Asian and black patients have a longer length of stay in Oregon compared with whites. We do have a lower readmission rate. I'm not sure what's driving that. So what we're gonna do in Oregon to try to go after these healthcare disparities, we decided to go ahead and do a literature review. So Dr. Isaac Kim at Providence Portland, who's our sepsis champion, did that, he found that Black patients across the nation have a higher death rate um, than whites for sepsis. And he also looked at the New York State Sepsis Initiative, which as you know, after the death of a young person from sepsis, New York rolled out a requirement that every New York hospital have a sepsis program with three-hour bundle adherence data. And Dr. Kim found this graph which shows that we started without a real disparity in the process measure, which is 60% bundle adherence, but that through the course of 2014 up through 2016, our white patients started getting the bundle more reliably, but our black patients did not. So here's an example of QI gone wrong, widening a healthcare disparity there's a long list of things in this area that i can hardly look at but i feel like our next step is to go ahead and look and i can tell you that i had to look and talk with our data analyst to make sure they're not trying to adjust for race in that e because wouldn't that be terrible like we're going to adjust out your race because we expect you to do poorly if you're from this color skin No, no, we're not doing that. I'm relieved to find out, but I had to ask because there are things like this that are under the carpet that we may not be aware of. In Oregon, we are gonna try for care pathways. Um, We think the sepsis order set at least defines our workflow for our cases. And it at least helps us to mitigate the unconscious bias that once at least once we start the care pathway, everyone gets the same care going forward. But we're also going to be reviewing our cases. So we had 43 um, deaths among patients that are Native American, Asian, and Black um, in 2021 for sepsis in Oregon. And we are reviewing all those cases. And I will tell you, the first case I looked at, the woman died of... <laughs> grossly contaminated skin wounds. And when I looked at her chart, she presented in October, but she had had a colectomy left with a colostomy bag four, um six months earlier from a cancer, GI cancer. And she hadn't been able to follow up with her chemotherapy. When she came to her post-op doctor's appointment, she had not bathed or showered. There were holes in her clothes and she had not emptied her colostomy bag after having left the hospital and this woman was not able to get transport to her appointments. The Adult Protective Services did not take the case, and she wound up dying of sepsis six months later, but you and I both know that it wasn't sepsis that killed her. So we are gonna dig into those charts. We're gonna engage our stakeholders, try to tell some stories, provide education, and like any QI, we're gonna to have to accept that we are on a journey, just like the toddler with the blocks, and our first attempts may not be perfect, but we've gotta try. So I'm gonna close what, with what I hope are some stories to show that this can be done. I think ordinary doctors can do this work, and Don Berwick, who's my hero, who started the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, is famous for saying this question, what can I do by Tuesday? So I'm gonna give some examples, both from the outpatient world and the inpatient world. First from primary care, you know, we in primary care have this tree in front of us right here in this exam room. And then we also have our whole population, the forest of patients. And I think every one of us does QI every day, right? So for this patient who's here in front of us, We have the Epic storyboard. We now actually have these data at our fingertips. And if you're willing to hover over this little care gaps thing in the storyboard, it'll tell you that this person needs an A1C or is due for a colonoscopy. And you have an opportunity to hug a tree right in front of you, right? Epic also has these new metrics, new in the last 10 years, right, which are provider panels. And I think of this as the forest. How can I take care of all the patients on my panel? And if you're willing to dig in, you can see on your dashboard, for example, your patients who have diabetes but inadequate blood pressure control. You can see whether you're red or green compared to others and you can actually get your own patient data. I removed the MEDREC numbers and names for this slide, but here's their last blood pressure date, what it was measured at, and you could be in your own little world doing something by Tuesday, and I know many of you do this, and part of our primary care rotation is asking each of us to take a look at these data right here at our fingertips. PMG has a whole website devoted to this. And if you get passionate about CT scans, for example, for patients for lung cancer screening, they have a whole uh, group of um, ideas for quality improvement where the data are pre-built and anyone can dig in and start doing this work. But I think the most important thing is to pick something that you really care about. And I will share an example of that. Um, Many of our residents who are required to do a QI project come to me and tell me they want to do a project that improves our goals of care documentation. And I will tell you that is because you guys carry the code pagers and you see the downstream effects of not doing this well. Well, this is an idea whose time has come. I feel like our electronic health record has finally caught up with what our mission is, know me, care for me, ease my way. How many times have you had a patient say to you, oh, you know all that, I'm sure it's in my chart. And yet we all know that work that is done by outpatient doctors can be very hard for inpatient doctors to find. Well, all that was true until the advent of this good green tile, the goals of care tile, which is able to capture in one place, easy to find on the Epic storyboard, the conversation that's so critical that happens between a hospitalist and a patient or a primary care doctor and a patient about what their goals of care really are. And I'm not gonna dig deeply into the problem. I think it's obvious to many of you, but if other care team members can't easily find the note, then unnecessary escalation of care can occur. So we built together Um, kind of some education for primary care doctors, for hospitalists about how to populate this goals of care tile. And we actually embedded this clever dot goals of care smart phrase, which actually pulls data right from your progress note where you're documenting it, and pops it into the green tile where it belongs so that someone else doesn't have to do a huge chart biopsy to find it later. This is an example of an idea whose time has come meaning that when once somebody hears about it they're like we should do that too so we have members from providence milwaukee providence portland providence st vincent and we have people engaged in the hospital workflows clinic workflows and now we're launching ed workflows so look at all the people doing something by tuesday for qi just to share here are some charts that alyssa built for us we have our zero um, percent of wellness visits having a goals of care documented up until quarter two of 2020 when we launched our project. And you can see now about 30% of our wellness visits for patients over 65 have a goals of care note. Same thing for our transitional care encounters. Here are Wiley and Gat bad. Matt Gabbau doing the same thing for hospitalized patients. Joanna picking up work started by Garrett and Heidi doing the same thing in our ICU. And then partnering with our ED docs shown as Dr. Lynn, but Dr. Madden's also been greatly involved and Dr. Kunihira to try to spread this work to the ED. So, to me, this is an example of our ordinary doctors getting in touch with our data analysts, shown here, Alyssa Nelson and Molly Modi, to try to actually make a difference for patient care. Some lessons from this, gotta tap into our passion. If we care about it, it'll go. And if we don't care about it, the balloon may fall to the floor. So, I tell the residents this QI project is like a balloon. You don't have to tap it very hard to keep it going, but there's no project that you can just hit into the air hard enough that you can leave the room and expect that the project won't fall onto the floor when you come back. We have to normalize the process that sometimes the balloon does land on the floor, and that's okay. That is just part of doing this work. And when we get these projects on our own calendar, we can plan that things will start stop stall start again but we can come back and make that project go so i'm going to tell some stories about inpatient medicine and i I know some of you are here today dr freer dr marcel dr Corman, and others who have helped champion this work but i want to share with you how we're trying to bring this um, concept of data in the hands of the doctors right here to our organ regional unit collaborative So, starting in 2022, this group sponsored by Jennifer Gentry and Dr. Freer is going to help nurses and doctors work together to improve quality of care. Our aim is to improve patient-centered outcomes while reducing waste through streamlined workflows and interdisciplinary communication tailored by the individual clinical unit. It's a little revolutionary, right? Because Traditionally, we've had executives who set priorities and then we've had the fundamental unit of care in the hospital, which is really the nurse physician dyad with the patient. And we've had this sort of structure that's a little loosey goosey about how we take Amy Compton Phillips priorities and get them into Stephanie Griffith's head and heart here at the bedside with her patient, right? And What we've tried to do is recognize that what we need to translate these high level priorities into genuine changes in patient care, we actually need unit level paired nurse physician leaders who understand their particular units, culture, priorities, population, caregivers, who have real relationship with the people there and um, can actually translate things. So here is our triad, we're not a dyad, but Laura and I with Tanisha Perry, who's our nurse unit manager on Medical A. And we've identified that in order to move QI forward, we actually have to get to know each other well. And we have to meet weekly. We align on key initiatives. We stay in touch with morale. You can see we're bringing treats to celebrate our unit's birthday. We have to know when to prod and when to prop up. And we really share accountability for our unit specific outcomes so we build the patient-centered workflows whether that's geographic physician assignment our bedside or tabletop rounds quality safety checklists and disease specific pathways this unit started back in 2013 and um, there's a picture of our paper showing that we were able to reduce mortality and then In 2018, Providence launched a similar unit collaborative with Brent Kimberley and Adam Miesgeiski and others um, to build a nurse-physician dyad on each of several units at St. V's. We got a grant to hire Molly to get us data, and we have our own length of stay data. This is revolutionary. We can show you your length of stay by team. If you were on Team Blue, we know your length of stay. If you are on Geographic Unit Medical B, we know your length of stay. And this is a way to build accountability. And instead of it being, well, that wasn't my case, now we can say, "Eh, it was, you discharged the patient, right? So a whole bunch of, of new QI work can really burgeon here. I view us as a structured yet flexible engine for innovation. We will have a regional resource. So there's a, a regional director, a project manager and an analyst But then there are these nurse uh, physician dyads leading units at PROB Portland, PROB Milwaukee here. And we're gonna be able to tap into energy that comes through graduate medical education from our nursing colleagues and our hospitalist medical group. So the financial incentives for the hospice for quality have never really been as closely tied to what nurses are working on. But through this unit collaborative, we're gonna get everyone pulling in the same direction. So here are some examples of projects we've done and are doing, and I realize I left a few off. The SDLT2 inhibitor project that Omar is leading and that we'll hear some about next week um, is among these projects. But we have a COPD pathway. We're doing pills for blood pressure instead of of, um, IV antihypertensives. We're working on better communication through Epic Secure Chat. We're working on goals of care, and many of you are involved in this work. We're gonna hold ourselves accountable to the clinical um, performance improvement plan, so the overarching goals for organ region, but we are going to um, personalize that and get it down to the unit level and adapt it for our patient populations. And there will be some projects that don't make sense to work on on a given unit. So just as a taste of some of the benefit we've already seen, this is work that many of you did. I see uh, several of you in the room who worked on COPD, and I don't know if you've seen this, but we launched our COPD pathway, measuring whether we gave blood gases, whether we gave early non-invasive ventilation. Um, and here at St. Vincent, our readmissions o to e for COPD has been improving and improving and finally is below one. Um, And I don't know if it's our good work that led to that, but I like to see that outcome improving. And it makes sense to me that when we prescribe pulmonary rehab and we work on smoking cessation and we teach people how to use their inhalers and prescribe them the right treatment, that we might be able to prevent some of those readmissions. So I am looking forward to the next stage in our development I think we started as toddlers and it only makes sense that when we first started with quality improvement, the people that were um, most drawn to metrics might also have been people who are most drawn to money. And it might've been that it left a bad taste in our mouths, but I actually think the proof is in the pudding. And I hope I've been able to convince you that ordinary doctors really can provide extraordinary care. And look at all of us. I can't wait to see what we do next.
0: Great, thank you so much Dr. Sanders um, for uh, a tremendous wealth of practical experience and examples um, and also inspiration I think for us to move forward. Um, I will pull a comment here from our online audience and invite more questions to come through and then perhaps take questions or comments from the room. Um, This is a comment that emerged uh, during discussion of disparities um, and just makes the point that cost of medications or care um, can be a widener of healthcare disparities. If you are measured on what people cannot afford, there is a system problem, not a provider problem.
1: Wow. So well said. Yeah, and I think about our SGLT2 inhibitor work and I genuinely believe that it, the data are there for those drugs and yet they are genuinely expensive and we've got a breakdown, don't we? Right. Yeah. out
0: ways to support actually getting the therapies to our patients. Um any comments or questions coming from the room here?
2: Shelly, I uh, love the idea of the emergency room doctors being able to look at their data and drill down to specific patients who they think there may be explanations for. And it's with my enthusiasm for that that I will ask the following question. How do you know you're not just helping them to cherry pick in that circumstance with this very custom feedback? And if you are confident that you're not helping them cherry pick, how is that scalable to a large number of patients?
1: Yeah, great question, Alex. And um, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's some kind of balance, right? What we do just pragmatically is there's a defined workflow. So if a doctor says, I don't think that was sepsis, then that case, the nurse reviewer brings it both to the medical director, Dr. Lin, and to myself. And so it goes through a peer review process and Joe doesn't just get to pull out all his cases from the metric. And then in terms of making it scalable, that's a really interesting question. And I think for me, it's shortening the feedback loop, both in terms of time and in terms of the number of steps someone has to go through to see their own data. So the example of actually collecting the star or the check mark on our glucose chart is perfect because I'm collecting the data and I see it right there in front of me. I don't have to get it from a query or what have you. And I think, being creative in that way and maybe letting go of some of the ideas that there has to be money attached to it and just trusting that doctors want to do the right thing and would do the right thing if they even realized they were doing the wrong thing um, might be a way forward. And, you know, Don Berwick has this whole essay where he talks about scaling back what we measure. And I think all of us that work in sepsis care, we appreciate that CMS was measuring the bundle adherence, but we're glad they never put money behind it. And I think many of us are Happy to let go of that. Um, perhaps there is such a thing as over measurement, just like over diagnosis.
2: More comment than a question, but it's kind of a question. Shelley, first of all, thank you for this talk. It was awesome, it was great, really, very thought provoking. Um, You know, we're constantly challenged because uh, in in a way we're swimming in data. We've got so much data now and it just pours in and it's hard for sort of the rank and file physician to figure out how to get his or her arms around their own data. Um, And increasingly, organizations don't want to invest in analysts to organize that. They they design systems to, to allow us to self-serve our own data right but people are busy they're trying to see patients they're they're overwhelmed by all this stuff any thoughts on just how to sort of uh, thread that needle where we can get good quality data to people not all the extraneous stuff that's just a distraction but but help people get their data while still recognizing that there's a, a balance here with with the cost of procuring clean high quality actionable data
1: yeah. Yeah, so well said, Steve. And uh, honestly, what comes to mind to me um, is, I have to laugh, I'm going to tell a story on you, Emily. So I actually think it goes back to passion. And I think we, each of us has something we care about. And if each of us pulls in that direction. You know when I see Omar, I think SGLT2s. When I see Nate, I'm thinking pulmonary rehab. It actually does galvanize and improve us. And we don't all have to do everything. So the story on Emily is when I was a resident and went to your house, you were scrubbing every single plastic bag, reusing it. And then when they fell apart, you would put them in this special box where you would take them to the special recycling place that actually takes plastic bags. And I was completely overwhelmed. I was like, I cannot do that. I love the earth, but I can't pull that off. I have dermatitis. But I ride my bike to work. And Emily came to me and she's like, you're greener than me. You ride your bike to work more than I do. And I was like, it's really easy for me to ride my bike to work. I like to ride my bike to work. So you know what? My thought is, you work on COPD, you work on pulmonary rehab, you work on SDLT2s, and we help each other. And I'm not sure that every one of us has to understand the data, right? I think we need a representative that does. That's my thought. I don't know.
0: Great, well, I wanna be respectful of time. We are right here at nine o'clock. Thanks so much for joining us and thank you, Dr. Sanders.